Hey there. Welcome to Twins Talk Clear-Cut Communication. Yes, we are twins. And yes, we are two old guys who should know better than to try to tackle the topic of communication in a podcast. But we're going to do it anyway, and hopefully you'll find it informative and maybe even enjoyable. Hey, we're coming to you from Eustace, Maine, where they provide t-shirts that said, I got useless in Eustace. So Jim, was that your experience? Did you get useless in Eustace? <laughs> no, I have not. But if I was there, I would have. <laughs> okay. That's not beyond your ability to conceive of being in a city and saying, I can get totally useless. I could do that. Well, we're delighted to have with us an executive that we've been wanting to have on for quite some time. As Jim was talking about his background, the fact that he has grown up in the business world and started on the floor and didn't start it somewhere up in the C-suite but actually began to work his way up. And that became a part of his ability to be what we call a turnaround executive, where Jim has turned around a variety of companies. And as he began to list them, we said, wow, let's save this for the podcast. So Ray, maybe I'll toss it to you and let you get going with the question. Okay. Because this is a communication-oriented podcast, I'll start with the communication question. Jim, what uh, communication or what styles of communication did you find most effective when you had to go into a new organization and help it recover? Really two. Uh, One is departmental meetings, not company-wide meetings. I've never thought of myself as having great oratorial skills. And so, you know, I would work at the department level plus one-on-one. My best skill is one-on-one. When you choose departmental meetings and then one-on-one, that's clearly an intentional conscious choice to say, this is the best way for me to get connected with this organization to begin to make the moves I need to make. What were you doing in those meetings? How did you run that departmental meeting? And then how did you do that one-on-one? Well, the, the idea of these meetings in both cases is to get information. And so everything is about getting people to ask questions, to respond to questions, but also to ask questions. I don't believe in very large meetings because the larger the meeting, the fewer people will participate. Mm. Okay, because more people are you know, less comfortable about talking in front of a large group. So that's why... I tend to get the maximum amount of information and the minimum amount of time is deal with one-on-one, particularly starting with my staff, because invariably I have to make some choices in a troubled company about staff very quickly. There's simply no time, okay? And so the one-on-ones is very much with my staff. I always, if the company I picked up was a second and third shift company, I always hit second and third shift for the first several weeks of being there again one-on-one with operators, one-on-one with a supervisor, a small department meeting on third shift. You know, in most cases, they would have never even seen the president of the company before. Mm. <laughs> you know, and to, and to have a small shop meeting like for the machine shop on third shift, you know, there's just a tremendous amount of information to be gained by that. Well, Jim, what I hear you say, which is really fascinating and important to me, is that you would have surprised most of those operators and a lot of those executives by asking for the information rather than telling them what you expected of them. Because a lot of people expect to be spoken to, not uh, communicated with a president. And so I'm hearing you say is your style was to go and not talk to people, but listen to and get from them vital information that you're going to have to use to make decisions pretty quickly. Well, and and Ray, that's true because, you know, I mentioned earlier about the CFO of a company. The fact is, 
in the first uh, instance, the financial information is really not that important as compared to getting to understand what is the human resources that are available to make this thing turn around. Because mm. it doesn't get turned around by cutting more cost out of it. Generally, when I would go into a company, there was already two or three years of cost reduction. Plus, unfortunately, when a troubled company continues troubled, you begin to lose good people. And that's that's the greatest danger. And so part of that communication process is to make sure the good people can see and feel hope that it's not going to be another three years like the last three years, because you cannot continue to bleed your best people. You just You just cannot. So the question I want to ask, how did you help them lose bad people? Because I'm assuming that you've got to keep the good people and begin to move the bad people out. Any thoughts on that in terms of how you learned who was going to be in that category? Yeah, that started with my staff, because you cannot depend on a poorly performing staff member reporting to me to make decisions about what people of his are going to stay or what people of his have to go. That's why it's so critical. You know, you can look upon this, my talking to lots of people in detail, and I mean really lots of people in a new company in detail. You know, it is really just getting multiple information sources, but almost all that information I use at first is about people. Mm. Who is going to make this trip with us? Again, the most important thing is to make a distinction between somebody in a meeting who nods their head in agreement, leaves the meeting, and then is totally negative about what's going to happen. What you want is someone who raises their hand and disagrees with you in a meeting. And the people who agree in the meeting and then leave and are negative about change, those are the people that I shoot first. (laughs) because they simply are going to be in the way. And bless them, a lot of that is because of the last two to three years they've gone through. But I'm not a psychologist. Okay, When someone has been hurt emotionally because of their horrible experience they've had the last three years, in a turnaround, I don't really have time to fix that. I look upon, you know, this communicating with multiple groups and multiple people, someone like the Internet today. You know, the Internet gives us, in the last 25 years, sources of information that we never had before. You don't have to listen to one story. You shouldn't listen to one story. You need to consume a tremendous amount of varied information so you can make the best decision possible. And on the front end, the best decision possible is all about people. When you say it's all about people, when you go in and you turn an organization around, how much of that involves a changing of the guard, so to speak? To what degree do you see yourself as a turnaround exec, being a person who has to make that decision and identify the people that need to go and the people that need to stay and how I'm going to move forward? Well, I think that I do that uh, probably uh, pretty well and very quickly because you need to get that behind you because that's only important in the short term. Mm. You're not going to turn around a company, again, by cutting more cost. You're going to turn around a company by creating more volume, profitable volume. And so there's this tremendous effort in the first 30 days about deciding who's going to make that journey with you, who's going to support it, who's going to be helpful. And then you immediately start looking at how are we going to grow this thing? You can cut costs continually. okay? but when you come into a company on a turnaround, I find it a negative to have to cut a lot more costs because they've been going through that for years. That's no change at all. In fact, it is the big change is to quit cutting costs. Focus on getting the group of people that you need together. And then how do we grow the business? Where is the new level of business at? Boom. Jim, what turnaround or what new organization did you go into that you found the most challenging, the most difficult, the most interesting to you? 
Well, it just happened in South Dakota in August of 2013. <laughs> and it was not a turnaround in the sense of a, a company that, that had been losing money. This was a company that, in fact, had been developing a product and was ready to take that product to market. So what you had is you had basically a research company, and the change was turning into a money-making company, hmm. a profitable company. And I left there one year later after getting the former CEO fired, the guy in charge of the research, because he was a complete fraud, complete and total fraud. You know, I started in August. I knew he was a fraud, I thought, after the first four weeks, because I did a bunch of analysis and went to him and said, you know, you cannot build greenhouses that are going to grow this plant to produce ethanol using dirt, because you can't get 200,000 cubic yards of dirt any place you want them, anytime you want it. It's got to be done with hydroponics. And he immediately agreed after he'd already spent seven years of this. And I just made a statement that was changing his life completely. And he agreed to it. But then I brought in a professor from the University of Florida who was a hydroponics expert. And this guy was so good at fraudulating, and I make up a new word, fraudulating his <laughs> Well, that's research. a good one, Jim. We'll use yeah. that on the podcast. His research documentation that he fooled Dr. Huang a hydroponics expert who worked for a man in Florida at the university who was an expert in the plants that we were using to produce ethanol. But it didn't take long after Dr. Wong started till we put things together and could then prove to the board that uh, this guy was a complete fraud. If, in fact, his research documentation was correct, this would have been something as large as Google. Mm. The potential was going to produce ethanol, not from corn, but from a common water plant called Potomagadon, you know, in bioreactors, which were small pools of water. And so uh, that was my that was my most interesting one. There was no product in the end. I was going to say, you're leaving us with the impression that it didn't get to Google status. What happened there? It turns out that the, the plant is incapable of making the kind of ethanol that he was making claims for. <laughs> the thing is, is that um, it was something that needed all the investors were local corn farmers in South Dakota who had invested in ethanol plants. He had convinced them this was going to replace all those ethanol plants that invested in, so they should invest in his company, which was the future. And so the difficulty really was sorting through all that while he was still there. Mm. Typically, he had left, which would be the more common situation, is, is the president leaving and then Mike coming in. I could have sorted through that really quickly. But uh, with him there, it, it took me a little while. And it actually, it took me hiring an expert. So that was my most difficult one. I think my most interesting one was Regina, the vacuum cleaner manufacturer. Now, Ray, you're shaking your head. You're familiar with Regina? You were involved with that? Well, Jim adopted me early in my career, I think as a result of one training exercise I did at Ingersoll Cutting Tool, Myers-Briggs thing, and I called the cutting tool a gear. And Jim thought no one could be that blissfully ignorant and not probably be useful. And so uh, he adopted me from that point on. He and I continued to have constant contact until he asked me to be his vice president of human resources for the startup firm in Tennessee, Cutting Technologies. We have maintained contact for decades. Is Regina that company or you were just involved with Regina? Well, I was just involved. Jim and I had already made contact. That was on the coast, Gulf Coast. And Jim just thought I could come in and be of help with their human resource. So Jim didn't think you were fraudulating. He just thought you were blissfully ignorant. There's a difference between fraudulating and blissfully. Right. I don't know that I've ever fraudulated in front of Jim or anyone else for that matter, but I have been blissfully ignorant in a lot of situations. 
Well, actually, what it was is uh, about the program on Myers-Briggs. I had never seen that formalized program ah. before, and I found that really intriguing. And quite frankly, as I got into it, I really developed a great deal of belief in those the basic principles. And the other thing is, I am actually a, let's see, INFP? No, no, you are, a, you're an extrovert. Oh, no, I was just an expert, but you always said I was really an I. No, 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 you're always... Yeah. So he told me more than once, Bob, that I, I should have never been successful in business. He, here's a story that proves Jim's an extrovert. Jim and I went to New York during Chinese New Year. And there must have been 4 million people in two square blocks and sounds and firecrackers and everything. I hid in a corner and Jim was out in the street practically dancing just to the <laughs> energy level. Thought there's never been more clear example of an introvert who wants to get out of all that, and an extrovert who's just collecting energy by all that humanity and all that noise and all that celebrating. Now, Jim is an ENFP. I would love for us to be able to use Regina as a wrap up and to talk about that experience. So, Jim, fire away. Well, Regina was interesting in that uh, I had done a turnaround on a company in New Jersey, and one of the board members made and bought the company Regina. And Regina was a private company, and the management group had made a plan where they were going to buy Regina themselves once they destroyed it. Now, that's not completely accurate, but they were really so focused on buying the company really cheap through a, a management buyout, they were losing sight of some of the fundamentals. Like their return rate from Walmart was almost 15%, and Walmart was 50% of their business. Mm. Okay, it was just horrible. And then Dr. Amala bought the company, and an Israeli public company is a purchasing vehicle. And so he, then he came to me and, and hired me, and I started on December the 5th. Uh, the day I started on Monday, they were balancing checks for the third time since the acquisition, and they were supposed to have been cash positive. And so I went to Amala with a plan after six weeks, and it was going to require him to put a few million dollars into the business. And what he said is, I don't put good money after bad. Keep me out of it. Keep my company in Israel out of it. Take their bankruptcy. Get it sold. Well, uh, as it turns out, Phillips Electronics had been looking at the company the same time that the owner had been, and they had made a decision not to buy. And one of the ways this gentleman, very one of the most brilliant people I know, was fooled is that the people at Electrolux who were still there were saying that in fact Phillips was still looking at it, and so that convinced Joe that he was buying something of value away from Phillips. And it turned out not to be true. And so once I put it up for bankruptcy, though, Phillips contacted me immediately and they were back into it. And then I made the plan that Joe in January of 1994, uh, December, uh, January of uh, 95. And then in May, it went through to the sale and bankruptcy court in Atlanta and Phillips actually bought it. And so I stayed for from May until October uh, when they got a gentleman from uh, who was almost ready to retire but a Phillips person in from their vacuum cleaner plant in uh, Grunenberg in the Netherlands. And so, you know, he came in and I left. And then about a year later, I got a phone call from my former engineering manager saying that Phillips was going to shut the plant now. Okay, now one of the companies that had come through the plant during the bankruptcy analysis was uh, the people out of here called Bissell who were making all of Oryx product. So I knew that they were making Oryx product up in um, Michigan. And I knew David was in New Orleans. Okay, because of those conversations. So I contacted David and convinced him that he should buy this plant. Hmm. So David did. And uh, there were probably, well, the plant was completely shut down. In fact, I made a bid on the business myself personally, the assets of the business, to hold it. 
And so then um, David made a decision to buy it. And we went from having nobody in the plant to uh, 550 some odd people in four years. Hmm. Owned his production down in Michigan and moved it to uh, Mississippi to that plant, a 350,000, 375,000 square foot plant. And we were making we were making vacuum cleaners like crazy. And uh, they paid for that acquisition and just the cost savings that we introduced within the first six months to Corex vacuum cleaners. Wow. The complete purchase was paid for basically in the first 12 months. It was just really a tremendous experience. A lot of good people. Ray was instrumental in that, by the way. He was there on a consulting assignment full-time. Occasionally, I think he took a trip someplace else, but essentially he had an apartment. <laughs> and, um, and my HR manager, the first person I hired when Phillips bought the company, and uh, I fired her boss, who was a VP of HR, and really made a good decision with Diane. Is that correct, Ray? Absolutely. Exceptional HR person. Absolutely. So a real success story. Yeah, it, it really was. The fact is, is they sold Oric in 2004, and the decision to buy that plant and bring their manufacturing and engineering, critically engineering internally, counted for probably $125,000 of selling price in 2004 mm. from the acquisition in 2007, I mean, in 1997. And this was not a computer business. This was, <laughs> this was you know, a vacuum cleaner business, a manufacturing business. It was really a wonderful story. That's and then they sold it. They sold for it in, oh, I think it was 04, right, Ray? And then uh, uh, the owner who started it, uh, David Orrick, he uh, went ahead and retired and became the founder. And Senecas came in to run the business. Jim, we are delighted to have you on the podcast. You've been very important and for me, very instructive on some of the key components of really going in and trying to turn an organization around. Ray, last thoughts? Jim, last thoughts? For me, one of the fun things to have you say is that so much of your success is by being alert to all the fraudulence you encounter in nearly every situation you entered. Someone was covering up something. Someone was keeping things from being clear. And you naturally saw through it and identified what needed clarity and offered it. I think that's very true. Yes. It was fun hearing the stories again, Jim. Thank you. The twins are done talking for today. Now it's your turn. We'd love to hear from you with feedback regarding today's theme or a situation you'd like us to step into during a future session. You can reach us at twintalk46 at gmail.com. Remember, no communication problem is so big, so complicated, or so intense that we can't make it larger, more complex, or more dangerous than it already is almost effortlessly. And we'd like to thank Kevin McLeod for the score that both began and ended this podcast.